Dear Heavenly Father, I thank you for the family of God. I thank you for the brothers and sisters we have in Christ who are there to help and support us at each stage of life. Lord, it's a blessing that we get to experience the joys of life with others who we know and love and who celebrate with us. And I thank you, Lord, for the gift that is Lakeside Community Chapel, for the dear family that you've created here for us. And I pray today for each one of our hearts that we would be stilled from the distractions of the world and we would be able to focus through your empowerment to hear the word and apply it to our lives. I pray for Mike as he teaches this morning in Sunday school that you would give him great wisdom to share truth with us. And I pray for Bruce Mills, who's preaching in this morning's service, that you'd empower him. And I pray for Mike Arbia, who's preaching tonight, Lord. Every person who is opening the word, I pray that they would be empowered by you to bless us through the teaching of your word. And we ask all these things, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Good morning. Hopefully you remember where we've been studying and you are already turning there. Book of Haggai. We've been looking at somewhat of a little obscure book in the Old Testament near the end called Haggai. I don't know about you, but for me it's been a really good experience to go through this book. And even though it's a little book, I believe it has a big message. It had a big message to the people of that day, and it does as well for us. Just quickly, I'll take a couple of minutes to go just backwards a little bit and refresh our memories. If you remember, the book started in chapter 1 with Haggai bringing a message to the people on priorities. It was really a word of rebuke. They had just been released from the 70-year captivity in Babylon. A group of a little more than 42,000 some odd people had returned under the direction of the Persian king Darius to go home and to rebuild the temple. And they did just that. But as in a lot of endeavors in life and in ministry, there were a lot of people who opposed them. The opposition got together with the civil leaders, and they were able to effectively stop the work. The people quit working on the temple, and for the next several years, they went about the business of building their own houses, the luxurious houses, and they basically just set aside the Lord's work. That's the state of things that Haggai appears on the scene with this word, from the Lord, and it was a word of rebuke. He was telling them that God was not pleased with them. In fact, his hand had been against them. He goes about telling them that their financial struggles were a direct result of the hand of God. God had caused drought. He had caused famine. He was trying to get their attention so they would straighten out their misplaced priorities. And it worked. The people responded, and they did get back to work. So God then brings a message of encouragement to them. Uh, The second week we looked at what happened was a few weeks later, we saw that in chapter 2, verses 1 through 9, we learned that the people were now discouraged and needed some encouragement to ensure that they didn't quit again like they did years earlier. They were were discouraged for various reasons. The primary reason was that some of the people, the older people, were reminiscing about Solomon's temple, the one that had been destroyed. And they were 
really upset over this temple being much plainer and simpler and they were murmuring and complaining and the people got discouraged. And that's when God, through Haggai, brings a word of encouragement to them. That's what we looked at the second week. He explained to them that they were looking at things through the wrong perspective. That was what he primarily talked about. He talked about his presence and he talked about the fact that their perspective was wrong. That's what we looked at in chapter 2, verses 1 through 9. And then, after that, the people of Judah were encouraged. They did get back to work, and they had been working now faithfully for a couple more months when Haggai returns again another time. This was the third time, the third main time, that he came back with the word, and that's in verses 10 through 19 of chapter 2. We saw that this one was a little different. He comes to them with a series of questions, and the questions concerns holiness. And he talks about their holiness and their hearts. And we talked about that last week, about how holiness is not just an act. It first starts in your heart. And then your motives and your heart are very important to the Lord. And then that's what we talked about last time. But this time we come, there's three more verses left. And that's where we're going to finish up this week in verses 20 through 23. So let's read that and see what the Lord has to say through his prophet Haggai, beginning in chapter 2, verse 20. It says, The word of the Lord came a second time to Haggai on the 24th day of the month. Speak to Zerubbabel, governor of Judah, saying, I am about to shake the heavens and the earth and to overthrow the throne of kingdoms. I am about to destroy the strength of the kingdoms of the nations and overthrow the chariots and their riders, and the horses and their riders shall go down, every one by the sword of his brother. On that day, declares the Lord of hosts, I will take you, O Zerubbabel, my servant, the son of Sheltiel, declares the Lord, and make you like a signet ring, for I have chosen you, declares the Lord of hosts. You know, as I was attempting to outline this message and divide it into some main points, I was really having trouble organizing it the way I usually do. If you know me, I like to have a good set of points, and I was having really a hard time putting the... And it wasn't because there wasn't any information here. There was a lot of information in these three verses, but it just wasn't flowing together for me in an organized way. So after I spent quite a bit of time studying and organizing my thoughts, I went to the several commentators... And it was kind of strange because they basically just reviewed the passages and what they meant, and then they reviewed the chapter and they were done. I knew I needed 10 or 11 type pages to have to fill my time, so I'm thinking that's not going to work. So I was somewhat stuck, and if you know, I have a daily routine, and one of the things I do every morning, usually about 6.30, is I go out and I walk or I ride my bike. And I use this time as part of my devotion time. The sun's coming up, and it's just a really beautiful time for me. And as I was doing that and walking, and I was watching the sun come up, and I was actually meditating on the lesson and the attributes of God, and it occurred to me as I was doing this, as I thought about this message that Haggai was bringing to the people, and I was churning the message over in my mind as I was reflecting on the sunrise and God himself, the Holy Spirit, I believe, revealed to me that you can see right off that he was revealing something about the future in this passage, that he was revealing a prophetic message. But the thought struck me that he wasn't just doing that. He was also revealing a lot about God himself. 
After I had that thought, every time I went back to the lesson, that just kept coming forward, that God was not just revealing a prophecy, He was revealing Himself. And as I thought about that, I thought about the purpose of Scripture. You know, John told us in his gospel, John 17, 3 says, This is eternal life, that they may know you, the one true God and Jesus Christ whom he has sent. That's the purpose of the gospel, is for men and women to come to know Jesus Christ and God himself. That's why the Bible is called the good news. And one of the best ways to know God is to know his attributes, to know his character, to know who he is. A mere theoretical knowledge of God does not help unless you can learn to trust Him, to know Him, who He is, and be able to trust Him for His divine perfection and characteristics. So once I had that thought in my mind, I couldn't let it go. I couldn't study the passage anymore without thinking about the attributes of God. So what we're going to do this morning is we're going to look at the verses, we're going to explain the context and the meaning the best we can, and then we're going to make application by drawing out the attributes of God that are exposed and revealed in this passage of Scripture. We're going to look at seven attributes of God that are revealed in the text. So let's begin with verse 20. Verse 20 tells us that the word of the Lord came a second time to Haggai on the 24th day of the month. And you realize that that's the same day the other message came to him on. So this is the same exact day that he had delivered the third message that we looked at last week. But there's a major difference. All of the past messages, not just the last one, but all of them were directed at Zerubbabel, who was the governor, Joshua, who was the high priest, and all the people. This one is directed only at Zerubbabel, the governor of Judah. It says that it says that plain as day here that he says, speak to Zerubbabel. He doesn't say to all the people. And that doesn't mean that there is an application for all of us. I think there is. But we're told the message is first and foremost for Zerubbabel. That being the case, I thought it might benefit us to go back and look at the man in a little more detail. And as I tried to study who he was, I really don't know a whole lot more about him than what we're told here. But there are a few times that he's mentioned in scriptural. And one of the things I found is, and I think I mentioned it in week one, is that Zerubbabel is the grandson of Jehoiakim. Turn back to Jeremiah 22. In Jeremiah 22, there's a mention of his grandfather. And if you look up the names in Scripture, you'll also find that his grandfather's name was also, sometimes in Scripture, called Coniah, C-O-N-I-A-H. So those are interchangeable. It's two different names for the same person. So I'm going to read Jeremiah 22, verses 24 and 25. He says, As I live, declares the Lord, though Coniah, the son of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, were the signet ring on my right hand, yet I would tear you off and give you into the hand of those who seek your life, into the hand of those whom you are afraid, even into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, into the hand of the Chaldeans. So we see from reading this that his grandfather was the one who was king when the Babylon came in and destroyed the old temple and took the people captive. And the reason God allowed that was because that he was a wicked king. He was not following the righteous laws of God. And so we see that he was removed from the throne and the Bible heritage and lineage is very important. So when you think about this, you know, he knew who his grandfather was. The people all around him knew who his grandfather was. 
And when you think about that, do you think that made him a more Zerubbabel, a more effective leader, because easier or harder? I think it made it harder because he has something to prove. His lineage is not really one of righteousness and of good rulers. His grandfather only ruled for three months and he was taken from the throne. So I think that, you know, he, and, and think about this. He is, in essence, not a king. He's just the governor appointed by Darius. So really, he's just a puppet king. He really doesn't have much control. He has to run anything of importance by King Darius. Darius has to approve it. He had to approve him coming back and rebuilding the temple. So he's really got a bad heritage, lineage, reputation. He is just a puppet king. And I'm sure that Zerubbabel had some discouragement at times because of this. But he finds himself in charge of rebuilding the temple, overcoming the complaints and murmuring. He has a challenging task before him. This is the context that Haggai brings the message directly to him. And what's the message? The message is in verse 21 and 22. He says, Speak to Zerubbabel, governor of Judah, saying, I'm about to shake the heavens and the earth and to overthrow the throne of kingdoms. I'm about to destroy the strength of the kingdoms and the nations and overthrow the chariots and their riders and the horses and their riders shall go down, every one by the sword of his brother. He's obviously, when he talks about the shaking of the nations and destroying all the people, he's referenced again like he did back in verse 6 of chapter 2, a future event. He is prophesying about something that hasn't happened, something that's going to happen in the future. And I said then, and I still believe, that this is probably talking about the tribulation period when he defeats all the foes that would come against him. We don't know for sure, but I think that's the best indication. When God would ultimately triumph over Satan and his evil of all the people around him as they come against him. But then in verse 23, he encourages Zerubbabel by telling him that in that day he'll be made like a signet ring. Now, do you know what a signet ring is? A signet ring was a very special thing in that culture. A signet ring was a mark and identification of royalty. They usually wore it around their neck on a necklace or they wore it on their finger. And it had a special insignia in it. And they would use hot wax and they would put the hot wax and they would press the insignia into that wax and that would be their seal. And that was very important to the royalty and to, especially to the kings and rulers. I went back and tried to find instances in the scripture where that was used and I found several. There's one in Daniel 6:17, where if you remember when Daniel was placed in the lion's den, they rolled the stone over it and then they put a signet on top of that, a seal, so that no one would bother it. That ensured that no, by the authority of the king, no one was going to touch that. So you can see that the signet ring was very important and valuable. It was to be protected, lest someone steal it. We actually have a case in the Bible of that happening. In 1 Kings 21.8, when the evil queen Jezebel was trying to acquire Naboth's vineyards, she took King Ahab's signet ring and wrote letters in Ahab's name and sealed them with his seal. The signet was special. And because she had it, she was able to do that and to be able to propagate her deception. In the verse we read earlier back in Jeremiah, we read that Jerusalem's grandfather was stripped of his throne when he was deported to Babylon. It says his signet ring was removed from God's finger. But here in Haggai, Zerubbabel was told by God that he would be made like a signet ring. I think that's what that's saying is that God is reinstating the Davidic line and renewing his covenant with David.
Zerubbabel would be a means of expressing God's authority. I think God is saying that I'm going to work out my plans and purpose in history through you. You are important. When you study the passages on lineage in the Bible, you'll find that Zerubbabel is an ancestor in the list of the genealogy of Christ, just like David was. God is saying that he was going to continue to work out his saving purposes through Zerubbabel and his descendants, even though there's some breaks in the chain, in a sense, through the wickedness of his, his grandfathers. But the verse actually said, In that day I will make you like a signet ring. Zerubbabel will not be alive in that day, if it's referring to what I believe it is. It's talking about a time in the future when the Messiah comes. So how do we look at this? I believe, and almost all Bible scholars believe, that this is a messianic prophecy. This section here is also what theologians call a typology. Zerubbabel is a typology of Jesus Christ in this passage. Jesus is the ultimate signet ring of God. And these verses point us to the day in history when everything will climax as Jesus will ultimately fulfill God's promises as they relate to his chosen people and to his elect from all nations and tribes. As Jesus ascends to the throne and the rule of the universe, this type of writing was used often of David at times. Zerubbabel is being used to prophesy about Christ. Just as David was in the line of Christ, so was Zerubbabel. This proclamation to Zerubbabel would have been a tremendous encouragement. As God tells him, he is special. He is not done with him. He was an important leader in God's plan for the future. Him and his descendants were all important. So these encouraging words to Zerubbabel are the way the Lord chooses to end this proclamation from Haggai to the people of Judah. Now that's a quick look at the meaning and the closing words of Haggai, but what I want to do now is go back and draw out some amazing attributes of God that reveal themselves in this passage. And as we do that, we're going to be reminded of God's character. And the more we study his character, the more we come to know him. I listed seven. There's actually probably many more than seven, but seven's a great number. It's a special number in the Bible, so that's what I choose to use. Now, the way we're going to do it, I'm going to read it again. I'm going to make an emphasis on a certain word to begin. Let me read the passage again, beginning in verse 20. The word of the Lord came a second time to Haggai on the 24th day of the month. Speak to Zerubbabel, governor of Judah, saying, I am about to shake the heavens and the earth and to overthrow the throne of the kingdoms. I am about to destroy the strength of the kingdoms of the nations and overthrow the chariots and the riders and the horses and the riders shall go down, every one by the sword of his brother. On that day, declares the Lord of hosts, I will take you, O Zerubbabel, my servant, the son of Sheltel, declares the Lord, and make you like a signet ring. For I have chosen you, declares the Lord of hosts. When I read the word emphasizing the word I, what does that say to you? It says several things to me, and we'll talk about it. But first and foremost, it reminds me of God's presence, and not just His presence, but His involvement in the affairs of men. Theologians have a term for the ever-presence of God. They call it His omnipresence. Sometimes we live like God is up in heaven and we're down here on earth, and He doesn't really come down and visit us all that often. I heard one Bible teacher say that God sits high and looks low. And that sounds good, but I don't think it's an accurate picture. 
It is true that God sits and is aware of everything that is going on here on earth, but not because he's up in heaven, sitting on the throne looking down. The Bible teaches that God is spirit, and his spirit encompasses the entire universe. He is not matter taking up space. All matter that takes up space is encompassed in God. In Jeremiah 23, 24, God says, Do not I feel heaven and earth? This could sound like God is contained in heaven and earth, but that wouldn't be accurate. I read a quote by Arthur Pink in his book on the attributes of God. He describes it this way. He says, God fills heaven and earth in the same way a bucket thrown into the ocean would be filled with water. It would be completely filled with the ocean, but it would also be encompassed by the ocean. So when God says he fills heaven and earth, he does, but heaven and earth are also submerged in him. He's spirit. He's everywhere. But more importantly than the fact that God's presence is everywhere is the truth that God did not just put everything into motion and step back. That's called deism. A deist believes that God created but is not sustaining or actively participating in the world today. And that's a lie. Scripture clearly points out, and our study in Haggai clearly shows that, God is active, presently working in individuals, churches, nations, and nothing escapes him because he's everywhere, which leads to another attribute displayed here, and that's his omniscience. God is what? What does omniscience mean? All-knowing. He displays that here in Haggai in many ways. In our text today, he shares his knowledge of the future by telling them that there's a time in the future when he is going to shake the heavens and the earth and destroy all the evil that is against him. You know, there's certainty in this. It's not a question of whether it's going to come about or not. There's certainty in this. Because, why is there certainty? Because, Because he knows the future? He's a good fortune teller? No. Because he is the future. He is the one, the author of the future. Another attribute of his omniscience is his infinite knowledge not just that he knows circumstances and events, but he also knows men's hearts. He knows their thoughts. He knows their motives, intents. He knows when they need a rebuke and when they need encouragement. This letter with Haggai begins with the Lord rebuking Zerubbabel. And then here in the last message, we see him encouraging Zerubbabel. The Lord, because he knows what we need, because he knows our heart, he knows when to rebuke, he knows when to encourage. We don't always know the difference. He knows perfectly what we need. So how do these attributes apply to us? Can we go anywhere and escape God's presence? When I'm on a business trip and my church family's not around, my spouse is not there, when no one's there, God is there. And he not only knows everything about me. He's not always there with me, but he knows the intents of my heart. He is inside my head. He knows everything I'm thinking. That's somewhat of a scary thought. Hebrews 4.13 says, No creature is hidden from his eyes, but all things are laid bare before the one whom we must give an account. I can't escape his sight, but I have the solitude of my mind, right? No, God is there. I think if people could grasp that thought, there'd be less unrighteousness. God is there not just knowing what you're doing. He is there with you when you do it. We can rationalize things away. We can deceive ourselves. We can't deceive God. 
Another attribute I saw in these verses is God's omnipotence, which what does that mean? All-powerful. These verses reveal the power of God. We saw it earlier in our study when we looked at the name that was used, the name that was used, Almighty God, the Yahweh, and I think the King James uses the Lord of hosts, the Lord of all the armies of earth and heaven. He used it again in verse 23. Our text today, God points to a time when he will overthrow all his enemies, all the horses, all the riders, and he talks about the chariots all going down. This was and still is an important thing today in the power of a country. In their day, it was chariots. If you had the most chariots, you usually won the war. What do you think? What do countries put their power in today? I was thinking about this. I thought about China touts a billion-man army. They put their faith in, the, in their numbers. Russia probably puts their faith in their nuclear bombs and their submarines. What does America put their faith in? Probably a combination of power of the military, the technology that we possess, and probably even the almighty checkbook and the, the wealth. But who really has the power? God does. God has the power to accomplish any and everything he so desires. It's kind of like us going to war with an ant. With just a quick step, we can crush it. And as I thought about that, I thought that's not even a good analogy. It would take us more exertion to crush an ant than it would for God to destroy his, all of his enemies. It's also valid to use this illustration individually. What do we put our trust in individually? Our checkbook, our health, our ability to work hard, our intellect, our good looks. I heard someone say once, from 0 to 18, you trust in your parents. From 18 to 36, you trust in your good looks. From 36 to 54, you trust in your good personality. And from 55 up, you just need cash. You trust in your riches. <laughs> Obviously, that's a joke. And anything we put our trust in besides God would be vanity. Nothing else, no one else has the power God does. God is the source of all power. Everything else can fail and will. God cannot fail. He has the power to fulfill his every desire. Which actually leads to the fourth attribute that I saw in this text, and that's faithfulness. God is always faithful to his promises. The children of Judah were promised that God would make them a great and prosperous people who would give them a great land, and yet, where have they been? In the distant future, they were back in Babylon for 70 years in captivity. Now they're in the land, but they're, they're really suffering, and they don't feel like a great and blessed people. But he is, and God reminds them of that. He said that he's going to restore the Davidic covenant, that through the line of David and Zerubbabel and their descendants, the promise would come that he would always fulfill his promises. And we know through Scripture and through history that is true. And any promises he has made that have not been fulfilled are only that. Promise it that he have made and have not been fulfilled. They will be. We can count on it. God's faithfulness should not be taken lightly. And as I thought about that, I thought, you know, there's probably many in this room that have been recipients of broken promises. They've come in many shapes and sizes. Maybe a loved one has not been faithful to you. Maybe a parent has not been faithful. 
Maybe you have a child who's let you down. Maybe an employer you've been disappointed with. A friend that's deserted you. Maybe you are the one that's been unfaithful. The world is full of unfaithfulness. But God is never unfaithful. He always delivers on what he promises. In Hebrews 13.5 we're told that God will never leave us or forsake us. In 2 Timothy 2.13, Timothy said, If we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. God is always faithful because that is who he is. It is an attribute of his character. Another attribute I saw in these verses is mercy. I see the attribute of mercy, the whole book of Haggai, but you think about the fact that God could have and probably should have destroyed them for their disobedience, but he didn't. He had mercy on them. He was patient with them, which is another one of his amazing attributes that I didn't even list. He could have just continued to let them, as we would say in Kentucky, waller in their sin. They are getting what they deserve. He didn't have to send Haggai to them, but he did. Not just once, but multiple times. He kept sending Haggai to them to rebuke them, to encourage them, to press them onward and upward. And isn't that what he does with us? Aren't you glad that God has mercy on us? Aren't you glad that God is patient with you? Aren't you glad he's not like us? If my patient was the standard that God went by, then all of you would be in trouble. (laughs) That's all right. Because if I was the one on the other side and I had to be dealt with the way your patience is, I would be in trouble. Thank God he's not like us. God was so patient and merciful to the children of Judah. He never gave up on them. He never gives up on us. Psalms 145.8 says, The Lord is gracious and merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. So do you know the reason why God is merciful? said it in the verse I just read. The Lord is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in what? Steadfast love. That's the sixth attribute is love. I see the attribute of love throughout the book of Haggai, but I see it very clearly in these last few words that we're looking at today. When he told Zerubbabel that he was like a signet ring, he was telling them that he was very special. God reminds Zerubbabel that he chose him, that he was special to God. He reminds him that his special love is reserved for his servants, his children, those who belong to him. And he identifies him specifically. He calls him by name. He says, son of Sheltiel. He's wanting him to know and understand that he's talking to him specifically. And I think that's an important truth. God doesn't just deal with us as people or as nations. He deals with us individually and specifically as children. Each of us, if we are believers, are adopted children, chosen out of the world to be a part of God's family. God loves us individually. He loves his church. He loves his people. But he loves me and you individually. And he makes it clear here that he doesn't just love us because we first loved him. What the word he used, he says, I chose. I have chosen you in verse 23. Which leads me to the last attribute, which is kind of where we started really, was God's sovereignty. God is sovereign in everything throughout Haggai. He reveals this truth. He is sovereign in all aspects, including who he chooses to use, 
who he chooses to bless, and even an election as to who he chooses to spend eternity with. This attribute encompasses all the other ones, as I clearly see the sovereignty of God throughout this entire passage. I began by reading the section emphasizing the word I, and I want to repeat it again. Because after I said this, with that thought in mind, here are the words again. Chapter 2, verse 20. The word of the Lord came a second time to Haggai on the 24th day of the month. Speak to Zerubbabel, governor of Judah, saying, I am about to shake the heavens and the earth and to overthrow the throne of kingdoms. I am about to destroy the strength of the kingdoms of the nations and overthrow the chariots and their riders. And the horses and their riders shall go down, every one by the sword of his brother. On that day, declares the Lord of hosts, I will take you, O Zerubbabel, my servant, the son of Sheltel, declares the Lord, and make you like a signet ring, for I have chosen you, declares the Lord of hosts. I heard several of you say it when I asked that question at the beginning. What does that sound like to you? And I heard two or three people say the sovereignty of God. Who is in control? God is. It just jumps off the pages at me. Isaiah 46, 9 through 11, the Lord said through Isaiah, He said, I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me. I make known the end from the beginning, from ancient times, what is still to come. I say my purpose will stand and I will do all that I please. What I have said that I will bring about, what I have planned, that I will do. We would be fools to think that we are in control. Even as I say that, I know that's confusing. Because in one sense, we do have control, don't we? God in His providence gives us free will. He does. We do have the will to make decisions and do just about anything we want to do. In obedience or in disobedience. But will anything we do thwart the plans of God? No. In His providence, He will use anything, any circumstance, any person, any group, any country, any leader to bring about His ultimate will. In the process of writing this message, I wrote down a statement where I said that we could do anything we wanted to do, but God could take the reins and turn the ship anytime He wants to. But when I went back and proofread that, I realized that wasn't even the best language to use. Do you see the flaw? God can take back the reins. He has the reins. He never let go. We might think we're taking the reins, but we don't do it. He's always in control of the ship. He isn't responding to our actions and constantly changing course to keep His plan alive. Everything is always in His control. That's what being sovereign means. We know this truth, but the truth is we don't always live like we know this truth. And I know that, and I can say that, because if we did, would we worry? Would we be anxious? Would we be fearful and afraid? Would we have stress? Would we be discouraged or depressed? We wouldn't doubt. The better we understand and believe this attribute of God's sovereignty, the more it would change the way we live. The people of Judah learned this the hard way. That even though they were working hard, sowing and cultivating and reaping, they learned that God could withhold the rain. He could bring too much rain. He could send hail with the rain. And all the crops would be destroyed. God was telling them that He not only knew the future, but He controlled the future. 
He could direct pagan kings to do his business. He could and he would destroy all those who would get in his way. But the most amazing aspect to me of his sovereignty is when the last verse he told Zerubbabel that he chose him. God could have chose anyone, but he chose Zerubbabel. Now that could be, that could be talking about choosing him to perform the ministry of rebuilding the temple. It could mean that he chose him to be the governor, the leader of the people at this time. It could mean that he chose him to be in the family lineage, which would lead to Jesus. And it could and probably does mean all of these things. But you can't ignore the fact that it also means he chose him to be a recipient of his love and his mercy and his grace. And that's true for us. Ephesians 1.4 says that he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless. In John 15.16, Jesus said to his disciples, you didn't choose me, but I chose you. So if you're here professing Christ today as your Lord and Savior, it is only because the Lord chose you. You don't have to understand it. You don't have to reconcile the doctrine of free will with the doctrine of election. I assure you that God has reconciled that in his mind. We don't have to understand it. We just have to accept both truths because they both are true. On one hand, Paul says in Romans 9, 14 and 15, in answer to a question about justice or injustice, he says, what shall we say then? There is no injustice with God, is there? May it never be. He says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I shall have mercy and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. It's God's choice. That sounds cold to some people. But there are two sides to God's truth. Later in the same letter in Romans 10.9, he says, If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, then you will be saved. Whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. That's truth. Both doctrines are true. God will save anyone who repents and comes to him in faith. That's absolutely true. And yet the Bible teaches that we're walking corpses spiritually and we have no ability to do that unless God intervenes. God is sovereign. I could go on. I'm sure that there are many other attributes of God revealed in these words, but I'm going to stop there. I really enjoyed putting these lessons together. Haggai might be a small, lesser-known book of the Bible, but his message to us is big. His message on priorities is needed in the church today. His message on overcoming discouragement is needed. His message on true holiness is very much needed. And his final message today gives hope to the children of Israel that they were important to God, that he still has a plan for them, and he does for us. And throughout the words of Haggai, to all who read and hear the words, the whole purpose of Scripture is to make God known. And I believe that the word of Haggai clearly does that as we see his attributes manifested in his dealings with his children. In the same way that our actions expose our hearts, God's actions expose his heart. The attributes he displayed to the children of Judah is who he is. His character is revealed. And his love for me and you is just as real. His faithfulness to you is just as sure. His wisdom and his power is still used by God to protect us and grow us. He's always been in control. He's still in control today. He's still working everything out towards his own will and desire. When we need rebuking, he rebukes us. When we need encouraging, he encourages. When we are disobedient, we get chastised. And God does all of that for the purpose of blessing us, perfecting us, motivated by what? 
His love. His never-ending, unconditional love for us. His desire for us is to have an intimate relationship with Him. Individually and specifically. And that's the purpose of the whole word, not just Haggai. Let's pray. God, thank you. Thank you for your word. Thank you for bringing us prophets of old and having them written down so that we can study them and learn from them today. May this message that Haggai brings to us, especially today as we think about how you spoke individually to Zerubbabel and told him how special he was, may those words speak to each of our hearts today. May we understand how special we are to you. Father, that you are not done with us. Each day we are left here on earth, it's because we have something to do, Father, to further your kingdom, to grow in our relationship with you, and to be about the business of your work. Do not let the distractions of this world take us away from that. May we be rebuked by these lessons if that needs to be happen to, to us. If Father, if we need encouragement, may these words speak encouragement to us. But most of all, may we learn more about you through the revelation of your divine characteristics and attributes. And may we get to know you in a more intimate way so that we can become more like your son, Jesus Christ. It's in his name that we pray. Amen.